Galatians chapter 2, we'll begin reading at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And with him the rest of the Jews acted insincerely, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Last week we saw from Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that there were some professing Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who were trying to have Titus, who was a Greek, compelled to be circumcised before he could be accepted in the church in Jerusalem. Paul, in verse 5, resisted that effort with all his might, And the reason that verse 5 gives is that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. If Paul had yielded to the desire of the circumcision party in Jerusalem to have Titus circumcised, the gospel would have been torpedoed, would have been over. The Gentile mission would have come to an end. And we would still be in our sins under the wrath of God. The gospel is the good news that when Jesus died on the cross, he purchased fully our right standing with God. And that the only way we can enjoy this right standing is through a life of faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. If you add any other requirements to being accepted with God in the act of justification, then you torpedo the gospel. For if justification and sanctification are by anything but faith, Christ died in vain, according to chapter 2, verse 21. Therefore, Paul drove his stake in Jerusalem and refused to budge. Titus will not be circumcised, that the truth of the gospel might remain. All right, now we come to chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And again, if you were listening carefully, you'll see that the truth of the gospel is at stake. Again. Gentiles are about to be compelled to become or to live like Jews in order to be fully accepted in the Christian church. In Jerusalem, the issue was circumcision. And in Antioch, the issue is the dietary ceremonial laws from Leviticus 11 out of the Old Testament. The two events, the Jerusalem affair and the Antioch affair, are bound together by two terms. First, the term compel. Notice in verse 3. Even Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. 
But in verse 14, notice also that Paul says to Cephas, that is Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel, the same word, the Gentiles to live like Jews? And the second term that binds these two incidents together is the phrase, truth of the gospel. Notice verse 5. We did not yield submission even for a moment that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. And then notice in verse 14. When I saw that they were not walking straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That's when he laid in. So in verses 11 to 14, Paul teaches that. We not only contradict the gospel when we demand that a person be circumcised in order to have right standing with God. We also contradict the gospel when we demand a whole other array of ceremonial laws like the dietary laws in order for a person to have right standing with God and be accepted in the church. But alongside with this Concern, this concern about the purity of the gospel, there's Paul's concern about his authority as an apostle. You remember in chapter one, the way that the false teachers in Galatia were calling into question his gospel and trying to add to its circumcision was by saying, this man is a second-hander. He is not one of the original 12 apostles. He does not stand on a plane with Peter and James and John. He has lesser authority. He gets what he has from then, from them. And Paul, in chapter 1, developed a fairly elaborate justification for his independent authority. His apostleship and his gospel did not come from man. They came from God by revelation. Now, here in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14... The same issue is at stake, namely Paul's independence as an apostle. If anyone in Galatia should get the impression that after that meeting in Jerusalem described in verses 1 to 10, where the emphasis on the unity of Paul and Peter was, if anybody should get the impression, well, from then on, Paul only acted by the approval and the guidance of the Jerusalem apostles. These verses here in 11 to 14 should dispel that notion immediately because Peter does not emerge here as the guide and the superior. He emerges in these verses as the one who must be guided and helped. When Cephas came to Antioch, it says, I opposed him to his face. And you couldn't think of a more graphic way for Paul to say, I am still an independent authority. I am not a second-hander. I am not following Peter and James around on their shirt tails saying what they say. I speak for the risen Christ. Now that creates a problem, however, because it looks as if the unity is shattered. The unity that we talked about the whole time last week developed in verses 1 to 10. And there are many scholars who say that Paul has given his case away 
in verses 11 to 14. He has revealed that there was such a deep disunity between himself and the Jerusalem apostles, it just exploded again as soon as they had a chance in Antioch. And the church indeed was built on a fractured foundation. The two never got back together. I have three problems with that understanding of what happened in Antioch. The first is this. There is no evidence that Peter and Paul, after this event, remained at odds with each other theologically. On the contrary, if you read 1 Peter, which was Peter's letter written later, and you analyze how he treated the gospel in its relation to Gentiles, you have a theology that's virtually identical to Paul's. In fact, it's so similar that many people say he was depending on Paul in that first letter of Peter. Second problem I have with that position. When you read verses 11 to 14, you don't get the impression there is a deep theological disjuncture. You get the impression there is an inconsistency in behavior based on a principle that they share in common. That's why he calls Peter a hypocrite. And third, it seems to me that if it had been well known, as surely it must have been, that Peter and Paul remained at loggerheads theologically about the truth of the gospel after this event, then he could not have written verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2 and hoped at all to make a dent in convincing anybody that they were really one. If the Judaizers could have said to the churches in Galatia, okay, sure, 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 they shook hands in Jerusalem. They were agreed down there. But a few weeks later, the whole thing blew apart when they saw how Paul really develops the church among the Gentiles. If that's what the Judaizers could have said in Galatia, Paul could have never, with any integrity or hope, of convincing anybody written verses 1 to 10. Seems, therefore, on the basis of these three observations to me that a far more natural and probable interpretation of what happened in Antioch is that there was no rupture in conception of the truth of the gospel. There was a rupture because of a temporary lapse of faith and inconsistent behavior on the part of Peter that Paul stepped in to remedy and in fact did remedy to restore the unity of the apostolic band. So I think we do well now to go back and look at these four verses carefully so that we can ask, how can we avoid doing what Peter did? That is, stepping out of line with the gospel. Okay, let's do that. There are seven Simple stages in the Antioch affair. One, Peter comes to Antioch, probably from Jerusalem, and he begins to eat with Gentiles. This is a great thing in itself. We'll come back to that. Second, certain men come from Antioch, from James, I mean, to Antioch. Third, Peter is afraid. Of those men. Fourth, his fear moves him to draw back and cut off Gentile believers from fellowship. 
Fifth, the rest of the Jews follow suit. And even Barnabas is carried away by the hypocrisy. Sixth, Peter stands condemned. He's wrong. He's guilty. And seventh, Paul rebukes him to his face. And verse 14 gives Paul's assessment of the situation and the content of his rebuke. In a word, he says, this behavior, Peter, is out of sync with the gospel. And what's more, it's inconsistent with your own principles, Peter. You're acting like a hypocrite. Let's go back now and look at these stages in more detail and keep before us this question. How can we today, Bethlehem, not walk out of sync with the gospel? How can we keep our lives day by day in sync with the gospel? Okay, keep that before your mind. First of all, in verse 12, it says, Before certain men came from James, Cephas, now Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock, and Petros is the Greek word for rock, and Peter is being referred to, therefore, in just two different words here. So don't confuse it when I call him Peter and it says Cephas here. Cephas ate with the Gentiles. Or, to use the words of verse 14, Paul says, Peter, you were living like a Gentile. Peter was enjoying the freedom of the gospel. It's just a beautiful scene here with this Jerusalem, Jewish, strict apostle came from Jerusalem and he was free to sit down, neglect the dietary laws and the custom of his homeland and eat with the Gentiles. Evidently, he had concluded Not only do they not have to be circumcised in order to be saved and keep the dietary laws. I don't either. Which was a radical statement, just radical thing for a Jew to do in that day. If you could put yourself back there into Peter's position and and just think what it meant to eat with Gentiles with no concern for dietary cleanliness you would have seen how far Peter had really made it. We shouldn't be too hard on Peter here. And I want to take you back and show you where this came from in Peter's life. What had happened to Peter to get him to this point? So if you want to, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. This incident here in Acts chapter 10 happened before the council in Jerusalem, just so you'll have it straight in your in your mind. This was early on in Peter's apostolic career, and most of you who are familiar with the New Testament know what happened here. But let me recount briefly. There was a man named Cornelius who lived in Caesarea who was a Gentile, a centurion. And God's intention for this man was that he be evangelized by a Jewish apostle. And to get Peter ready, For this meeting, which is unthinkable, he gave him a vision. And in verses 11 to 14 of Acts 10, here's this sheet. He goes into a trance, okay? And this sheet starts coming down out of the sky. And in it are all kinds of reptiles and animals that Jews weren't supposed to eat. Leviticus 11 said so. And a voice comes in verse 13 and says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. 
And Peter says, No, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice comes back, Don't you call common what God has cleansed. Now that is one of the most important events in church history. That turned Peter's whole life around, changed the course of the church. God was saying something like this, Peter, a new era of redemptive history has dawned. The Messiah has come. The Old Testament laws of circumcision and ceremonial cleansing have done their preparatory work Let them fall. You are a free man now. You may close ranks for the salvation of the Gentiles. And he rose up from his vision and went to Cornelius' house. And in verse 28, we read Peter's interpretation of the vision. And there's a little twist here I want you to watch for because it's very crucial. He says to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man unclean. Or common. Shifts from food to men. He he had learned the lesson. He had interpreted it well. That does not mean that men aren't sinners. That means that there is nothing in any Gentile or anybody anywhere in Minneapolis that should keep a holy Christian from closing ranks with them for their salvation. Then something utterly astonishing happened. Just blew the minds of the circumcised Jews. Peter began to preach, and God Almighty, Holy Spirit, fell upon these filthy, uncircumcised, uncleansed, unlaw-keeping Gentiles and made them his own without any preconditions but the hearing of the gospel in faith. It never could get out of Peter's mind. The Holy Spirit fell before they were circumcised, before they kept any laws. And then he was in trouble. Drop down to chapter 11, verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, recognize that name, Galatians 2, the circumcision party criticized him saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Does that give you a flavor for what Peter was up against in in Antioch? That's the same group, I think it's the same group that came out uh, out of Jerusalem up to Antioch. And that's probably the same thing they were ready to say when they came to Antioch. What are you doing eating with Gentiles? 
Now, Peter defends himself eloquently. He recounts the vision. He recounts his preaching, the falling of the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 17 of Acts 11. If then God gave the same gift, that's the Holy Spirit, gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed, that's the key word here, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, what can I do? Who was I to resist God? And they were silenced. In other words, God has shown me that redemptive history teaches that there are no preconditions for the receiving of the Holy Spirit, but one, hearing the gospel with faith. Isn't that what Paul said in Galatians 3, 2, when he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that means that when Peter in Antioch was eating with Gentiles in all freedom, he was walking in sync with the gospel. And Paul was happy. Way to go, Peter. You've come a long way, brother. Then something happened. Even though he was honoring the all-sufficiency of Christ, walking in love, trusting the Lord, free. Here come the men from James. Now, we can only speculate as to what was their relationship to James. Was James endorsing what they were going to say? or We don't even know what they were going to say for sure. We don't know why they came. But one thing is made very explicit. Peter was afraid of them. Why? Maybe they were capable of violence. I mean, he had really offended the conservative party in Jerusalem. Maybe it was simply that he would be called upon to give a theological justification of how he could neglect Leviticus 11, it's the word of God. And he would come off poorly before the Christians in Antioch, and he doesn't want to. Or maybe, and this seems to me maybe more likely, if he gets in uh, bad with the conservatives in Jerusalem, he's going to lose his status and his respect as the leader in that church, which he still possessed. And in fact, that happened, because James, by the end of the book of Acts, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. I don't know why Paul was afraid. One of those reasons, perhaps, or some other that I haven't thought of. We're not told, but he was afraid, and in a moment of weakness, he cut himself off from those Gentile believers. Can you picture, this is a great lesson in leadership here. You see what happens when a leader goes wrong? Everybody went wrong. The whole Jewish contingent in the church fell into line with Peter and Barnabas, son of encouragement, lover of Paul, on his first missionary journey among the Gentiles, the pressure was so strong, he went with them. 
left all the Gentiles alone. Now put yourself in the position of a Gentile believer in Antioch. What would that have meant to you? According to verse 14, Paul says that Peter and Barnabas and the others are, to use the words of the RSV, not walking straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Better way of saying it maybe, they're not walking right with the truth of the gospel. They are out of sync with the gospel. Now, do you see what that means? That means that it is true the benefits of the gospel come on one condition alone, hearing it with faith. But when the gospel comes, it changes your life so that there is a life in sync with the gospel and there is a life out of sync with the gospel. That's why Paul, even though he was standing up for the complete freedom in grace of the gospel, could say, you're out of line. You're out of sync with the gospel. You don't attain the benefits of the gospel by doing a little moral cleanup job on your life. You obtain it, forgiveness, cleansing, joy, peace, power. You obtain all that by faith in the gospel. But when the gospel so grips you, when you begin to hear and believe the drumbeat of the gospel, the rhythm of your steps changes. And so Paul took Peter to task, and we need to see three things that were out of sync with the gospel here in closing. I was teaching a a Bible study on this text to a group of men yesterday, and I asked them, what are the three things out of sync with the gospel here? And they nailed every one of them right on the head. Number one, fear. Number two, hypocrisy. And number three, legalism. And let's look at those together. Because we don't want to be out of sync with the gospel when we leave this church, do we? Fear is out of step with the gospel. The gospel does not beget fear. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.7, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, self-control. If you come this morning, and I'm sure in a crowd like this there are many, you come this morning afraid, maybe of something very specific that's on the way, or maybe, like sometimes happens to me, just a cloud of anxiety. You can't put your finger on what in the world it is. You just feel tense and anxious, and something's going to go bad today. And if you come like that this morning, you know what you need more than anything in the world? You need to see the gospel. You need to see that the gospel says something about God's intentions towards you this week. When you look at the death of Jesus on the cross for your sins, you know what that says about God's intentions for you? It says, I am for you and not against you, with all my might this week. Paul put it like this. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
If he did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, will he not with him give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It was Christ Jesus who died. Yes, was raised, is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. If you see the gospel and believe the gospel, you know what your heart cries out? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So I hope that if you are burned with fear this morning, you just, the Lord will grant the eyes of your hearts to be open to see the gospel. Second, hypocrisy is out of step with the gospel. Verse 13 says, the rest of the Jews acted insincerely. Literally, the word is hypocritically. So that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Peter and Barnabas and the Jews were being two-faced. They were saying, on the one hand, uh, in my heart, I really believe that I am free to live like the Gentiles and not keep the ceremonial dietary laws anymore. But with my behavior, I will say, to avoid the censure of the Judaizers, oh, I, I'm really living like a Jew up here in Antioch. I'm keeping, I'm keeping the law. Why were they doing that? Because they were so incredibly fearful of the persecution or criticism or censure or something they were going to get from these people. Isn't it true? Test your own experience and what you've seen in others. Isn't it true that all hypocrisy is rooted in fear or insecurity? And that's out of step with the gospel. Insecurity is inconsistent with the gospel. And I could just, I don't know how many in this room would be insecure this morning. Just really insecure. No root and stability and firmness and strength in your life so that you have confidence and boldness as you walk through your days in God. And you know the battle that you are fighting when some people or circumstances approach you, they demand, if, you're in, if you have integrity, that you stand up for your principles, but instead of standing up for your principles, you put up a front, you commit hypocrisy to avoid their censure. You know what battle you're fighting at that moment? A battle to believe the gospel. Some of us sort of divide our lives up and we say, well, the gospel was what I had dealings with when I was a little child and walked the aisle or when I was humbled by the Lord and converted. And now my battles are something else. That's not true. It's all in the gospel. And every day, the walk of faith is a battle to believe the gospel that God is for you and not against you, as was declared in Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. And there's a second way, besides that great statement of God being for us, that the gospel helps me avoid hypocrisy. I picture Jesus in the gospel 
facing the cross, a worse threat than I've ever faced or ever will face, having the option to play the hypocrite. He could have denied before Caiaphas that he was the son of God and saved his skin. Like Peter and the Jews denied their principles and saved their noses. And he didn't for me and you. He laid himself down on that cross without playing the hypocrite that I might have life. And here comes a temptation for me to play the hypocrite and avoid some little criticism or persecution. And shall I not be shamed by the cross, the gospel, if I play that game? Center your life on Jesus Christ and his gospel and the root of hypocrisy will be severed. Third and finally, legalism is out of step with the gospel. Paul says in Peter, uh, Paul says to Peter in verse 14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, what do you think Paul would have said to Peter if Peter said, what's this compel business? I didn't say anything. I didn't tell them they had to live like Jews. I just backed off. What would Paul have said? You know what he would have said. Your actions speak louder than your words, Peter. When you, as a leader of this group, take with you Barnabas and all the Jews and cut off fellowship from these people, you are saying as clear as you could possibly say, in order to be a full-blooded Christian in the body of Christ with full standing, you've got to be a Jew. That's compulsion, and that is legalism. Legalism is requiring that a person meet some standard of behavior before they can have God's approval. And the gospel is the very opposite. Faith alone is that by which a man can gain God's approval. So, legalism is out of sync with the gospel. Notice verse 21 of chapter 2 of Galatians. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died in vain. If Titus in Jerusalem has to be circumcised in order to be accepted in the fellowship, if the Gentile believers in Antioch have to obey the dietary laws in order to be accepted by the circumcision party, Christ died in vain. See why Paul takes this so seriously? The grace of God is nullified if that's the route we go. So let me close with three admonitions. One, believe the great gospel of Jesus Christ and fear no man. Second, believe the great gospel of Jesus Christ 
and do not play the hypocrite. You have more security, root, firmness, stability than any human in the world. If you are rooted by faith in Jesus Christ. And third, believe the great gospel of Jesus Christ and do not nullify the grace of God by self-reliance and the works of the law. Instead, orient all of your thought, all of your affections, and all of your life on the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the grace of God, full and free, and you will walk in sync with the gospel. You will be right with the gospel. Let us pray. Almighty God and merciful Heavenly Father, I long for this church to be a people with eyes for the gospel. Oh, that the gospel might shine more beautifully than that sunshine outside that delights our hearts so much. Christ, exalt the gospel in our midst. And as you press it home upon us, free us from fear. Free us from playing the hypocrite. Free us from nullifying the grace of God through self-reliance and legalism. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.